During 2020, the question of well-being went straight to the top of leaders' priorities, not just because of the obvious disruption to the workplace, but for many senior people, it was the first time they were personally confronted with isolation and the consequences of the 2D world of Zoom or Teams. We were literally in it together. In this show, we're fortunate to have one of the world's leading researchers in stress join us. Professor Neil Greenberg is a consultant, occupational and forensic psychiatrist. He served in the UK Armed Forces to a number of hostile environments, including Afghanistan and Iraq. Today, he's involved in pioneering research on the front line of COVID amongst ER teams. In this show, he provides leaders with practical ways of helping themselves and their teams through the storm. Hi, friends, and welcome to the Evolving Leader Podcast. Scott Allender here, and with me, as always, the indeterminately located John Gomes. Well, no, I'm where I'm always been. Well, your, your background's all constantly changing on me, so it's hard to know. I can't keep track of you. <laughs> no, this, is, this is real. This is not a background. This is a re- uh, reality. Reality. Uh, okay. Well, how are you feeling? I am, well, it's Friday, so I am feeling a little tired and wired. It's January, so you know it's kind of it was uh, it was pitch black at ten o'clock outside my window. I couldn't believe it. It felt like it was uh, it was, it was mm. uh, nighttime. But um, I'm anticipating with our guest today that by the end of you know the next half an hour or so, I'm going to feel a bit more restored and calmer. So um, that's all good. Great. So today we are joined by Professor Neil Greenberg. Uh, Professor Greenberg is a consultant, an occupational and forensic psychiatrist, and he's served in the UK Armed Forces for over 20 years, where he was deployed as a psychiatrist and researcher to a number of hostile environments, including Afghanistan and Iraq. Neil's research is quite wide-ranging and encompasses trauma mental and occupational health. So this couldn't be a more timely conversation to have today. And we are absolutely delighted to have you on the show, Neil. Welcome. And how are you feeling today? Oh, yeah. Well, today's a good day. It's Friday. It's the end of a busy week. And having switched from one Zoom call to another Teams call back to a Zoom call, uh, I'm looking forward to an opportunity to sup something a little bit alcoholic later on and to have a line (laughs) tomorrow morning. Understandable. I can't imagine that with your agenda you have a th- such a thing as a lion, Neil. Is that is that you know, is that permitted in your? Uh... <laughs> well, I also I also have two uh, two two young kids uh, who attend. I have two, twin girls who attend. So no, you're right. Lion is a kind of um, it's it's something that it's good in the imagination. It never really comes out into fruition. Well, that's the thing, isn't it? You are, you, yeah. you you imagine it, whether you get it or not. But um, there'll be a turning point. So I was really keen to have you on the show, and uh, so we shared a, a conference platform a few years ago, and I was struck just by how much your thinking and practices and insights are must be in demand right now. And before we get into all of that, uh, can you give listeners a brief rundown of your career, um, why you got into the field in the first place, and how your understanding of the areas of research and practice have developed over the course of your life? Yeah, so I, um, I went to normal school. I went to medical school because I wanted to be a doctor. And then whilst I was there, I, I went to Southampton University, which is near the sea. Um, I um, One of my colleagues there, his brother was in the Royal Navy, and he told me one day that he was going to London to go and see someone about joining the Navy. And uh, as a university student, uh, with the chance of getting a free train ticket to London, which was quite exciting. I said, oh, can I come too? 
uh, and ended up going up and one thing led to another. So I ended up joining the military, which was not on my to-do list when I was 16. But by the time I was uh, 20, I, I, I'd signed on the dotted line. And I had 23 years in the, in the military. I had a, had a great time and spent time on ships and submarines and with the Royal Marines and went and did my commando training and got muddy and climbed ropes and all that kind of silly stuff. Generally, as a general doctor, uh, working with the, the military and in the military. And then as time went on, I, I decided that I really was interested in not just health generally, but also about how people work. And that basically means in medicine about doing psychiatry. So I, I got very much interested in, in, in doing mental health uh, and managed to complete my specialist training. And one of the things that the military gives you this fascinating ability to do is not just to see patients as individuals, but to see patients as people who work in systems. Uh, and so when you would see someone from a particular ship uh, and there'll be five people who come in from the weapons engineering department who had had mental health difficulties, the chances are that wasn't just random. The chances are there was someone in that weapons engineering department who was causing some difficulties. And so your intervention can both be at the patient level, but also going to the ship and having a chat and discussion with the, say, the senior rate who might be in that department because something was going wrong there. And so I got really interested in how organisations uh, deal with mental health issues. Uh, and my strong belief, and this has been borne out uh, and supported by my research over, over the years, is that actually um, in organisations, resilience often doesn't lie in individuals. It often lies between individuals. And those relationships between how you get on with your colleagues and your supervisors um, are vital in determining you know, what your mental health's like and also your ability uh, to, to do well. And that's kind of followed my, sort of into my research work, where I've, I've done lots of work looking at military mental health not just in terms of um, admiring the problem, you know, go to Iraq or Afghanistan, it can cause difficulties, but also in what you do about it. And I've been um, very lucky to be at the forefront of developing sort of peer support systems, which are used in the military and now, now in a variety of other organisations and also sort of manager training and trying to look at ways of delivering sort of mental health training. I try not to use the term resilience too much because it can mean a lot of things, but ways of trying to help individuals and their teams perform well, even in really arduous circumstances. And over the last year or two, um, much of the research and work we've been doing has been looking at our healthcare service, because obviously the front line to some degree has been healthcare workers. And, um, and we had a paper came out just recently, for instance, looking at the mental health of intensive care workers, you know, who unsurprisingly are, are, are having a difficult time at the moment. And the challenge is, I've just come off a call about how we design a couple of things that might make that better, which has got to be the right thing to do as a doctor. As someone who suffers a little bit of mild claustrophobia, and it is mild, it's not, it's not like I, I'm scared of, um, of small spaces particularly, but the idea of living in a submarine and, you know, your, your idea of the system thing where you can't escape, you literally cannot escape um, the, those relationships. Can you just bring a bit of light to that um, in terms of how does that work in such an intense environment? Yeah, so I, I was lucky enough to serve in HMS Spartan, which was a hunter-killer nuclear submarine, and we went away. And the longest we were underwater without coming up was just over two months. But we were, for the majority of the seven or, months, seven or so months we were away, we were below the water in one shape or form. Uh, the only person on board those boats who gets their own cabin is the captain, and I wasn't the captain. Um, and so I slept uh, on a pallet in the weapon storage compartment next to Sally, the sub-harpoon missile, uh, who was, a, you know, she was the strong silent type of Sally. Uh, and there were 12 of us who slept in that compartment, plus some missiles and torpedoes. And, and it was also the place where there was a rowing machine uh, and, and a set of weights that you could just about use if you turned it in the right way. 
because it was one of the biggest compartments in fact, on, on the boat. And so you're absolutely right. You are in a pressure cooker uh, together with lots of other people. And actually the way that that actually manifests is actually all the relationship issues that, that normally would sort of come out and people would be irky and irritable. Actually, people tend to grit their teeth and not say too much because actually there, there is no way out. You can't close the door and slam it and you get more than a bit wet. So what happens is that pressure cooker tends to cook for quite a while. And then when the boat comes up and comes alongside in a particular harbour and you go out and, as you probably know, sailors do enjoy a drink or two, that's when the, the difficulties can, can, can really start. So actually, I, I think the military did it pretty well in that the leadership and the teamwork says, actually, whilst we're doing our job, whilst we're underwater, uh, you know, actually, we get on with each other, even if I don't really like you. But the time that that comes out is, is later on when the opportunity to decompress or, or explode in some cases occurs. Mm. So since I've been hosting this show with John, I've come to understand a bit about hostile environments. But I'm curious <laughs> about your experiences more specifically, Neil. Can you give us some insights um, coming back to, to the topic of resilience, uh, specifically your experience of that within these hostile environments, um, and then maybe your experience of it now? You, you, you mentioned uh, frontline healthcare workers as an example. Yeah, so, so one of the... One of the the aspects of, of, of working within the military, uh, particularly when you go to hostile environments, and, and although you know, Iraq and Afghanistan are examples, actually the military operates in lots of hostile environments, you know, which aren't always war zones. There's, there's plenty of challenges out there which don't always involve bullets and blood. But actually they, they absolutely take in groups of people who um, have really varied backgrounds, often very challenging backgrounds, and, and actually, they're trying to form teams that are able to be mutually supportive because you're asking these people to do things that, if it goes wrong, uh, doesn't just have a consequence for them, but also for their colleagues. And actually, as we sadly see in newspapers once in a while, it has a consequence also for the reputation of the nation in which they serve. You know, we see these unfortunate incidents that happen sometimes overseas where troops are accused of doing things that absolutely they shouldn't do. And that, that doesn't help, you know, doesn't help mm -hmm. the, the greater mission uh, as well as doesn't help the individuals or the people they might have harmed. And so actually, in terms of looking at resilience, what, what that basically means is that it, within the armed forces, and this is internationally the same, it's not just the UK, it, is that the, the very lowest level of leadership, so the lance corporal, the leading hand in the, in, in the Navy, so the most junior member of staff who, who has a leadership role looking after others, it's actually them who have the biggest influence on the mental health of the whole force. So if hmm. the person who manages your life day to day is a supportive, caring individual who doesn't take on extra duties to make themselves look good at the expense of others, you know, who treats all members of the unit fairly, actually, you can put that group of people into the most horrible of circumstances where there are really real and ever-present dangers just outside the base and even inside the base. But actually, their mental health is generally good, remembering that these people join the military you know, to do difficult tasks. So when we went around and did our research work in Afghanistan and Iraq, and we surveyed troops everywhere, you know, we didn't quite ask them to fill out surveys as they were having a firefight, but we absolutely did as soon as, as, soon as they'd finished. Uh, we found that actually troops who were well-led and well-supported and who felt that they could rely on each other, their mental health was infinitely better than the troops who were back in a main base area whose boss said, well, you know, we're in a main base and you just have to get on with it because there's other people doing hard work. So if you're working 16 hour days, you know, grit your teeth and, and carry on. So, so surprisingly, it wasn't all about the threat. That most important determinant of, of group resilience and individual mental health was actually the environment of the team that they worked in. 
And so that leads you really nicely on from a research point of view was, is if the junior leader is the most important person, how do we make sure that junior leader is as effective as they can be um, at, at looking after their team and appreciating uh, what needs to be done to, it, to improve their mental health? Because consequently, that improves their performance. So my, my sell point in the military was never to go into a unit and talk about wanting to be nice about mental health, although that's important. I was always talking about the fact that if you want to be a better soldier and do better on your promotion courses and be a better shot with your rifle, then actually the stuff I might talk about will help you do that. And so Mm. that was the sell point. I think it's really interesting when you talk about, you know, this bigger challenge now of well-being um, in, in the world. And it's not just COVID. I mean, for the last... 10 years, it's just been a rising increase in recognition in organizations. This is really important. But what, what, you know, the importance of leadership in creating the conditions for that. I mean, if you're talking about very extreme circumstances, then that obviously implies in less extreme circumstances to a, to a degree. What, what kind of things are those junior leaders doing that really makes people feel different? Um, what, what, what is at the root of it, do you think? So when, when our initial research, uh, and this was also, we have to say, with some colleagues, certainly in the US as well, who were fabulous to work with in the US military, when our, when our initial research showed the, the, the measurable strength of that junior leadership, what then, as I say, led on was, well, what can we do about it? What is it about that leadership that makes the difference? Uh, and there's been some really good research, uh, some of it we've done, but some of it, I have to admit, was, was done in Australia, um, where, um, which has basically showed that actually what makes the biggest difference to, to individuals' mental health if they're operating in larger circumstances is having a supervisor who can have what we might call a psychologically savvy chat, that you can talk about mental health not in a way where I've got a checklist here, I've got six questions to ask you, how, you know, how, how are you feeling? Because you know, anyone can see through that and the supervisor actually doesn't know what they're doing. But actually in training up a supervisor to give them a set of skills, a set of levers, a set of uh, tips, that allow them to kind of open someone up. So when you start by having a conversation and saying to a soldier, you know, how are you doing? And they go, I'm okay. You know, you don't want the the sergeant to go, oh, that's good. Well, let's move on then. You want the sergeant to go, really? You really okay? You know, given what Mm. happened yesterday, uh, or I'm glad you're okay. Actually, I'm not doing so good. And actually to, to get into a conversation where people will start to reveal just a little bit about how they're doing, because the next step on from that is, if you're not great, what is it that's making you, not feel or think great and what can we do about it so if we use that example at the moment and we're doing this with some of our healthcare staff in the uk um the idea there is that if you have someone working on intensive care who, who isn't normally an intensive care specialist and actually they are really anxious and they're, they're absolutely uh, concerned and frightened that they might do the wrong thing and the patient in front of them might die they might miss an alarm they might give the wrong dose of a drug they might turn them in the wrong way then actually if they can begin to admit that to a supervisor, the supervisor can put some mentoring in, they can put some supervision in. And actually the treatment for that anxiety isn't a mental health therapy. It's having good mentoring and supervision to do their job better because that will reduce their anxiety. But until someone can feel confident that they can speak to their supervisor about that and that they can admit that they're anxious and worried for what is a completely understandable reason, but they're worried about it, then actually you can't take those practical steps. So the, the crux skill here is increasing supervisors' confidence to initiate and maintain well-being conversations you know, with staff who are having tough times and to overcome 
the natural natural reluctance of staff to admit that actually they're finding things tough and they're a bit anxious. So how do you do that well? I, I What I'm hearing for that junior leader who's creating that space for their team to say, hey, I'm not doing so good, is a bit of vulnerability on the part of the leader themselves, right? When they, they themselves say, yeah, I'm not doing too good from yesterday, creating that space, creating that safety. Is there any other attributes that need to be present for that leader? And, and how do you go about getting them ready to create that space? So, so there's, there's three bits to it. Uh, the first is identification. So they need to have enough about them that they can identify someone who might be having a difficulty so they can begin to try and start one of those conversations. You know, so someone who's normally you know, effective at work is seeming to spend a long time making what, what you thought were quite simple decisions, you know, or they're changing characters, so they're more irritable or more withdrawn. Or actually, when you try and have an end of shift um, sort of review, which you normally do, actually, they normally take part, but actually they're always going home and, and just not joining in that last 10 minutes. So once the first thing is identifying that there might be a difficulty. The next thing is then engaging that person. Uh, and that might be by revealing a bit of personal vulnerability, if that's OK. You don't want to make things up, you know, and say you're not doing well if you are. But also to use other levers, such as I hope you don't mind me saying, but I noticed that actually you seem to be dilly-dallying over that decision and, and that's just not like you um, or to use something and say well I'm glad you're doing okay but I can tell you other members of the team have been coming to me I'm not going to tell you who they are but other members of the team have been coming to me and, and, and I know they've been finding it tough so that's creating an environment in which it might be okay to say just a few things that might indicate that your real vulnerability and then once that conversation starts it's to shut up and to do some active listening to encourage people to tell you enough of their difficulties so you can then come up with a plan so the last thing is how do you provide support and as i say most of the support that is is found to be useful uh, in terms of supporting mental health aren't classic mental health interventions so you wouldn't want a supervisor to say well let's do some mindfulness skills and and mm. get you to to think in the moment or here's how you do uh, grounding or progressive muscular relaxation all of which are perfectly good techniques that's not what a supervisor is going to be doing the supervisor can solve problems in terms of um, perhaps staff flexibility on timings, you know, who they work with, um, their skill set and, and their competence to do particular tasks. So the last thing is, is making that plan. So it's the identification, it's the engaging with and then making a plan that might make a difference. And I guess the last bit which fits with that is if that plan, if there is no plan that can make it better. You know, if the person, for instance, unfortunately, is talking about there being no tomorrow and they're, they're just thinking there's no point in coming in then, of course, you are going to need to help that person to get to, to someone more professional to seek help. But that's, a, that's, a, that's the last place you go. The first place you go is how can we solve this problem together? So in that um, study that you've been doing um, in intensive care teams, which I, I, I read with interest in the Financial Times we were reporting on it this week, what do you think the, the leadership challenge is for the NHS right now um, to, to respond to the, some of the things that you've seen? Because that we're so critically dependent on healthcare workers to um, not just cope with the crisis now, but also to be there for us, you know, post-crisis when there's going to be a whole se slew of new problems to, to deal with. Absolutely. So there's kind of two main challenges for the NHS at the moment in terms of mental well-being. There's, there's a lot more challenges out there other than those, um, although they are interlinked because if you haven't got a workforce that's capable and motivated, then you're not going to be able to deliver your services. So the first is what you do right now. What can you do right now to help staff do OK and also to to try and um, derail the problems they might have later? 
And that basically means we need to make sure the supervisors can understand how to have those well-being conversations. Um, the other thing that's important is, is peer support and buddying. So, for instance, on shifts, you want to make it absolutely a priority, as well as looking after patients, that Bob and Sandra, your job today is also to check in with each other every hour and to check how you're doing, because you need to make sure you're OK. Otherwise, the patients won't be OK. So we need to buddy people up. And there's other peer support systems out there as well that you, know, you might have uh, trauma risk management or straw or mental health first aid or whatever that might be. There might be other peer support systems you might use. And the last thing is what's called reflective practice, um, which is actually a, sim a similarity at the moment between healthcare workers and military is sometimes even if you do your very best, bad things happen. Sometimes there is no right answer. And, and a lot of healthcare workers I, I know are finding it difficult because they go into, into, into healthcare because they want to save lives and deliver the best care. And they can do their very best at the moment, but it's not good enough. And that's a hard situation to deal with and and that can lead to what's called moral injury where your your moral or ethical code has been broken and you feel guilty or shameful or angry for what's been happening and so what we think at the moment and this is still kind of you know, ideas rather than definite facts as we don't haven't looked into this enough is that we can derail those moral injuries or or, 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 or stop them becoming frank ill health by getting people to talk about that emotional impact in a safe place which again goes back to the leader so because in these environments at the moment, no one's got all the right answers. There are no right answers many of the time, but actually you don't want to end up with the story that is in your head being people died because, because I didn't do good enough. Or actually uh, I've been completely let down by my colleagues and my bosses because I was put in this impossible situation. So if you can talk about that in a reflective practice group, which is, which is about a leader starting off by saying, you know, let me just tell you, I haven't always got the right things. I, I found this really difficult. And you can actually talk about that impact upon staff and actually everyone can see that they're in the same storm together. They might not be in the same boat, but they're in the same storm. And what you're trying to do there is to develop what's called a meaningful narrative, you know, a story which ends up with not me being the victim or not me being the perpetrator, but actually it was really tough. And although some people died, actually we saved a lot of others. And, and that's, that's, that's a much better place to be psychologically than it's all my fault or it's all their fault. So that's stuff that you want to be doing now. And then the challenge is that as this storm hopefully begins to decrease, and we all hope that over time, that actually the period of recovery, as you begin to get back to whatever happens next, that's the most vital bit in terms of determining long-term health. So if you take any trauma, if you take a, a single trauma like the World Trade Center disaster or a train crash or the like, we know that you can look at how were people beforehand, you know, if, if vulnerable people go into these disasters, are, are they the ones that have problems afterwards? Um, the answer is not always. And you can look at how bad the trauma was, how bad was the disaster, how bad was the tsunami. Um, but actually, the thing that's most important isn't how they were before or how bad the trauma is. It's actually what happens in the, as the recovery happens. And we know that actually, if you can increase support and decrease pressure temporarily, then actually you can optimize the, the outcome for people and you can drastically reduce the likelihood that they'll go on and become unwell. So what that means at the moment is as, as this storm does begin to hopefully decrease, is the NHS can't take a, managers can't take a, a big sort of sigh of relief and say, oh, that's good. We just need to get back to services. You know, we can do that next week. There's going to be a lot of attention needed to be paid to make sure we monitor staff's mental health. We, we make sure they know where help is available. We help them develop a meaningful story. We say thank you to them properly. And we check in also. Supervisors need to check in what else has happened in their lives. Because actually outside of work, 
you know, people, unfortunately, there's bereavement, you know, there's financial pressures, people have lost jobs, there's children with difficulties. So if you don't ask about those questions, how will you ever know how, how people are doing? And those home life stresses are really important in terms of people's ability to, to perform well at work and their mental health. So we are absolutely advocating that supervisors, when the time is right, should sit down and ask about not just how's the last six months of the year been, but actually what else has been happening, what else, and what can we do to make it better? And so by taking an active interest in people's recovery, we think that not only should that um, stop or decrease the likelihood of them being unwell, but it also increases the chance that they might develop what's called post-traumatic growth, which is, you know, put simply that anything that doesn't kill you makes you stronger. And so actually there is really good evidence that if you take troops again, military personnel, if they go to a horrible war zone and they, unfortunately, bad things happen, when they come back, they realise that if they can cope with that, do you know what? The fact that the supermarket down the road hasn't got the two for one offer anymore, you know, that's okay. It's not so bad. So actually we're looking here for ideally not just let's stop people becoming unwell, is let's aim to go for growth. Let's aim to, to have a more resilient workforce that actually in the longer term uh, will be more able to cope with whatever adversity comes next. Hmm. So with so many organizations that are now kind of racing to catch up with their own well-being agendas, um, contextualizing what you've just talked about, what's, what's some advice you might give to the leaders of these organizations thinking beyond you know, thinking over the next several months, but even beyond into the next several years, there's a lot that you said that I think immediately translates outside of healthcare, of course, or those on the front line of intensive care units and such. But is there anything specific, tangible, practical advice you would tell a leader that's listening right now who's in a different area of the world, a different sector? Yeah, I, I, I agree. I think that, um, that actually, although I've looked at the military and I spoke about healthcare, that actually most organization most businesses uh, are going to be in positions where what's happened for the last year has not been usual and they're they're probably going to be egging to get back to you know some sense of normality to to get business back on track to start making profits and whatever else that business needs to do and i guess what i'd urge them is to is to not focus directly on the business output as your primary gain for a while but to focus on getting the staff support bit right because actually that will end up with a, with, a, with a better business output. Um, and there's great evidence about what's called presenteeism, which is you know, being at work in body, but not being at work in spirit or mind. And I think one of the challenges for businesses at the moment is that because um, the, the, the employment opportunities outside aren't great at the moment, you know, it's quite hard to find jobs, people are going to be less likely to leave if they're feeling demotivated or burnt out or not supported. So what you end, might end up with isn't just staff who are just going to walk because they don't like the way you're treating them, but you might end up with staff who actually um, go off sick uh, or who perform badly or, or actually feel that they're, they're, they're justified by not doing the work you want them to do because actually you treated them so badly. So I think if you can make sure that over the, the, the months and maybe even you know, the, the first year or two that you put a primary focus on supporting staff, which might seem strange when you're desperate to get your business output back, then actually that will have some really long-term dividends. And actually, I think also you, you will find that if you do that, actually the dividends will, 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 will easily come and you'll realise that that's the right thing to be doing anyhow. But I would say that as a, as a psychiatrist interested in mental health. But I really think at the moment, all the evidence would point towards you've got to be flexible, even when you think you can't be, because if you don't, you're, you're going to have much worse problems in the long term. What about the leader who is hearing this, is trying to do this, but they're struggling themselves and feel like they don't have their own support. What would you, what might you tell them? 
So I, I, and I, think, I think that's actually a pretty common situation. I think you know, we talk a lot, and I'm always aware that when I talk about managers and leaders and their responsibilities, it's easy to suggest that they're, they're invulnerable to all this and it's everyone else who's got the problem, and, and that's absolutely not the case at all. So I think that if you are struggling a bit, actually, and this might sound strange, but there's a bit of an advantage there. And the bit of the advantage is, is that when you speak to your teams and you're trying to think about how you support them, if you can feel strong enough to share at least some of that vulnerability, I think that that's likely to be really well received, uh, particularly at the moment. I mean, there's no reason you shouldn't be struggling, given what you've probably been through, as has, as has the world. So this isn't out of the blue. This isn't someone who, who isn't fit to lead this company. But that this is, gosh, this is a human being who I work with, who, who I didn't realize was actually human, just like me. Um, mm. So actually, I would try and appropriately share some of that vulnerability with your staff, which then leads you very nicely into the things you're going to do, hopefully, to look after yourself and the things you're going to do to look after your staff. And actually, you're then back into the, we're in it together. Actually, mm. the future of our, our business and our output isn't just reliant on you, the staff doing a proper job. It's actually reliant on all of us. And we're going to be a bit more compassionate and support each other. And, and actually, you may find that your staff end up you know, working that bit harder because they want to support you as well. So that's mm. what I would say. But certainly, I wouldn't do the stiff upper lip, grin and bear it, and, and don't reach out for support. Because um, that might have been good in the 1920s, but I, I think I think science has moved on now, and we know that that's not such a good idea. I love that. So the last time we talked, you were sharing with me some fascinating work that you were doing, which was pointing to the financial kind of benefits of creating more psychologically safe workplaces, and and some of the things that we've been talking about. Could you just give us a, a sense of that? Yes, yeah, so some of it's my work, but some of it's far cleverer uh, people who do, uh, help, do economics in a way that I, I don't properly understand. I didn't study that very much. So I think on the economist side, there has been work done with organisations who go through crises. Uh, and what those um, studies show um, is that if you look at share price as an index of how efficient an organisation is, is that after any crisis, you know, an organisation's share price tends to go down. And, and that's not surprising at all. But then if you look, and I think they've looked 250 days sort of you know, up, upstream of the crisis, organizations that actually um, respond well, you know, they support their staff, they get their business back on track, they put in plans, they make sure shareholders are well communicated with and they talk to their customers and all those kind of good things that businesses should be doing. They don't just recover. Is that 250 days later, they're doing, performing better than they were because actually their, their customer base realizes that actually they've got confidence that this organization can weather the storm and actually can recover. Unfortunately, organizations who fall apart and, and don't do any of those things, they don't just kind of flounder along at, at not doing very well. They go down really further and their share price drops. So I think actually at the moment you might think, you know, we're in a terrible position. How are we going to get back from this? But actually that, that ability to, I think, support your staff and come up with a sensible business recovery plan that doesn't see you having to get back to, to being completely functional by tomorrow, because that's just not realistic. I think that that will... Um, sort of pay out in terms of, uh, of the dividends in, in, in your share price and your output. Now, psychologically, we know that going back to my, my conversation earlier on about, about having supervisors who can have these sorts of discussions, these well-being discussions, is the great study done in Australia where they looked at fire station managers and they did this, this short training package helping managers uh, have these psychologically focused conversations with their staff and of course, firefighters in Australia, nothing against Australians, are great people, but they're, they're probably not the most psychologically minded individuals if you happen to be in the fire service in, in certain areas of Australia. And you'll probably get people saying that that's really unfair, but you know, I'll, I'll stick by that one. 
But however, training up these fire station managers in how to have these well-being conversations um, showed that when you compare the groups, the stations that had this training and the stations that didn't, for every pound invested in that training, uh, it saved £10 in sickness absence over the following six months. Now, that's a very useful output. So if you can reduce your sickness absence by 90% by getting your your managers to have these psychologically savvy conversations, I think any organization would be very happy with that output. So I think the economic argument for, for actually being sensitive and compassionate with your staff and with yourself actually um, is really important. And we need to, I think, just to pull back a bit on the desire to get everything back to normal and make sure it's all working you know, quickly, because I think that, that could cause problems. Hi folks, Phil Kirby here, producer of the show. If you're enjoying The Evolving Leader and would like to stay connected with us between episodes, follow us on Twitter at evolving underscore leader. And please be sure to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. Thanks for listening. Where are you focused now in the, in the, the years ahead? What are the things that you're most excited about um, putting your research uh, focus on? Well, uh, I think at the moment, what we, we have for years actually been really interested in the healthcare sector in the UK. You know, the healthcare sector has sort of nearly one and a half million staff. It's the biggest employer by a long way. They do a, a task which I think everyone would say um, it is completely critical, although at times people are you know, uh, uh, slightly critical of, of, uh, of healthcare staff and, and outputs. But actually everyone wants to enjoy good health. Um, but yet, actually, we've known very little about what it is that has uh, been the major, major drivers of um, operational success, you know, delivering good patient output and getting the numbers through, but also linked to that mental health. So I'm really pleased that we have a study set up now called NHS Check, which has got over 25,000 NHS staff in it. And what we really hope is we want to follow those people up because actually uh, our, our, the take from our department is it's very easy to focus on disorder and disaster and staff leaving. But actually, there's also a lot of staff who are doing well despite this horrible situation the staff who aren't leaving the staff who are joining so we hope that that data will allow us to to look forward about what what predicts good outcome and also the other thing is what sort of interventions that we want to design actually make a positive difference because the world of uh, mental health research and interventions has been um, plagued by the fact that there are lots of really good ideas that when you test them properly don't turn out to be helpful and actually in some cases cause harm so one of these is what's called psychological debriefing yeah, so 20, 30 years ago, that there was this thought that if you had a disaster, what you needed was lots of mental health professionals like me to come along and counsel people because that would make them better. Um, now, the idea was nice, but when you examined it in detail, you find that that didn't work. And in fact, the people who got the trauma counselling in the first few days after disasters did less well than the ones who got left well alone. Really? So I think we have to have, yeah, so trauma counselling, cycle. Oh, they're re-traumatised. Re- ah. Absolutely. And so th- this concept of what's called psychological debriefing, Um, Our national guidance in the UK and indeed the Australian guidance uh, says the same, which is do not do psychological debriefing. Now, most national guidance on treatment doesn't say don't do um, watching whales, don't do mindfulness. It doesn't say don't do something. It just says if there isn't evidence about it, it doesn't put in a recommendation. So for guidance to say don't do something makes it very clear that actually this is a thing which might do harm. And as a healthcare professional, our first mantra has to be do no harm. So what I want to know and what our research will show, and we've got other things in the pipeline, is to try and find out hopefully what works. But more importantly, if things don't work, we need to absolutely stop them happening because um, there's a lot of well-meaning uh, interventions and well-meaning managers who will, who will do things hoping it's for the best, 
But unless we evaluate it properly, we're never really going to know. And, and the debriefing uh, debacle says that we do need to be cautious that we're not causing any harm out there. So that, that's really interesting because there's this fine line between having psychological savvy conversations, which are to help and to show you care and to provide the space to be, you know, felt supported and psychological debriefing, which actually might do harm. How do you, how do you find the balance between those things? Yeah, I can see on the, um, on the face of it, it looks like, well, how do I decide which one I'm doing? And and that can appear complicated. Actually, I, I think there are lots of differences between the two. So the psychological debriefing side of things says that, Here's a team, here's a group of people who have had a really tough time. What I'm going to do is call in this outside expert to come in and make things better. That's not a good idea. So that's that's not what we want. What you do want is you want, going back to, you want the team to to, to do its support itself. And that team support should ideally come from a supervisor who isn't a mental health expert. And they should feel confident to be able to talk about what went on with their teams and find ways to to support each other. And we think that operational debriefing, you know, talking about what happened, about what we did as a team, that's decidedly useful, as long as it's not done in a critical uh, way, of course. Um, so I think that the key thing here is you don't need to look for external experts to come in and solve your problems. The best answers for your problems are actually within your team itself. And what you need to do is to have the confidence to, to take those first steps. And of course, you know, if a month later after the difficult incident, people are falling apart and still not doing well, absolutely, then they need to go and see a mental health professional. But they don't need that on day one, two or three, for sure. That's really helpful because often organisations, you know, might try to outsource some bits of what you're talking about here in, in a false belief that that's the best way of doing it. Absolutely. I, th- I think, and I see this again, I, I run a small business which does sort of psychological health support. And what I see routinely is organisations who haven't really thought about it to be fair, quite often because they haven't had to, you know, if you're a furniture warehouse, you probably don't think about psychological trauma very much. It's not on your to do list. But if there happens to be a fire at the warehouse, actually, suddenly it becomes really important. So the, these organizations often get their sort of employee assistance program or their sort of team counselors to come in because that's what they think people need. Um, and unfortunately, the counseling companies either maybe don't know or are keen to come in and get the extra business. What, what we try and do is to try and help those organisations look after their staff themselves. And that, and that often means working with the supervisors to, to upskill them, maybe even sit with them, but to get them to do their job of leading the teams and not to try and say, I feel terrible, just please go away and find someone else who you can talk to this difficult material about. That's a really valuable insight. Thank you. So, Neil, um, some organisations might be contemplating the, the, the kind of mechanism of screening either to, to look for... Um, vulnerabilities in difficult roles or or to find out whether somebody is having problems. Can you give some thoughts on how they should think about that? Yeah, so I can see that the use of psychological health screening can be quite seductive because you know, if it were to work, then what you would be doing is uh, before someone did a difficult job or, or difficult role is you would be somehow identifying them as vulnerable and you'd be saying, Look, I'm really sorry, I, I don't think this role is for you because it's going to damage you. So you would stop them getting damaged and you would stop yourself having staff going into a role who, who couldn't do it well. So that would be great. Um, and also screening can be used also after an incident. So you can try and identify people who've got problems early, given questionnaires or seeing a psychologist or a mental health professional. And the idea is if you find these people, you can then get into treatment early on before they have problems. And again, that's very seductive because that seems to be a sensible thing to do. However, when you look at the research into screening within organisations, um, unfortunately, it doesn't work. Um, and the reason it doesn't work is that people 
uh, are usually very concerned about the answers they give and what the impact of that, that will be. So when you're going to do a job that you want to do, the chances of you uh, answering the questions honestly um, and, um, uh, about your psychological health are pretty minimal. And there was a really good study. Um, uh, we, we've done one in, in, our, in our British troops, which basically showed it, it didn't predict anything at all. But there was a really good study published recently in Australia uh, looking at uh, police officers. And they handed out a, a complex, uh, comprehensive mental health screening tool called the Minnesota Multiphasic Personality Infantry, the MMPI. Try saying that one after a glass of wine. Um, <laughs> Uh, they handed that out when, when recruits came into the police and they followed them up for seven years afterwards and they found that the scores on the MMPI predicted absolutely nothing in terms of psychological outcome. And that, and that was a very, comp over 300 questions in that. It's got a validity scale in it as well. Wow. And the fact is that, that this idea of screening people beforehand, it, it's seductive, but what it does, unfortunately, is it, it's, it's both discriminatory because you end up telling people who could do the job that they can't. And it also ends up giving you false reassurance that, oh, yeah, we know this person's been screened. They're tough, that they're going to be OK. I don't need to look after them too much because we checked them already before they joined. And again, after a, a traumatic event, um, and this has been done a lot in military personnel. So you know, take U.S. troops. You know, there's been well over a million U.S. troops screened who come back from Iraq and Afghanistan. Um, and actually what what that found is a great study published in 2007 in a, in a really good paper uh, journal called the Journal of the American Medical Association, JAVA. It's a great journal. You'd be very happy to get a paper in there. And this evaluated the first few years of, um, of, of the US screening program for troops coming back from I Iraq. And it had over 56,000 troops in it. And basically what it found overall is if you got screened as having a problem and then you went and got help, you did less well than if you got screened and you ignored the advice. So it appeared to be that the people who, who screened and went into care actually got worse. Um, now, there's lots of reasons why that might be. Yeah. But what it led them to think is, actually, there's something going on here. We need to do a proper study. Uh, but unfortunately, they couldn't do it in the US because to do a proper study of screening, you need a control group who weren't getting screening. And Congress wouldn't allow them, the US military, to stop screening people. Uh, and so that worked very well for us because in uh, they ended up giving uh, the us $3 million uh, to do a trial of post-deployment screening in British troops because we weren't using screening at all. And so we did a trial uh, of about 9,000 troops over um, about three years. We screened half of them and the other half didn't get screening. Uh, we followed them up for about 15 months on average. And we found that the screening led to absolutely no change at all. It didn't change their mental health and it didn't change their behavior. Hmm. And the problem is that once you start a screening program, it's incredibly difficult to turn off because everyone's saying, well, we want, you know, why would we stop it? And yeah. so... I'm not saying screening is evil and bad, but I think what it does is it gives false reassurance and it allocates resources to a technique that doesn't work when actually you could be putting it into other staff support process that would make a difference. That's really interesting. Um, final question from, from, from me, um, and this is very much on my mind this morning, listening to the news and listening to the experiences that, that people are having of homeschooling um, and the anxiety of their precious children not having a childhood, not getting the education, and all of the um, the the, uh, the thoughts that parents' minds run to about what that seminal moment will have for their children's future, and what that means in in terms of your workforce uh, and what they're going through, because that could be like a very significant set of trauma. What, what that and other things, what kind of things should be leaders be thinking about in terms of providing support over the coming years? Because those are, those are they're not going to go away after COVID. They're going to be buried there um, and unfolding. What what kind of things should leaders be thinking about now in terms of helping their people? 
so I think if you're uh, in fact I'm, I'm a trustee with the Society of Occupational Medicine and at the moment we're just getting some guidance together which we're trying to get a bit of evidence based for on um, home working uh, with children you know it's exactly on exactly that issue so there's no doubt at all that that trying to balance the needs of your of your employer and the needs of your children is incredibly difficult and you know if you've got older children it might just be a slight inconvenience but if you have younger children or needy children then actually you know it it's understandable that that work has to come second place. Um, so I think that the answer here as to what to do about it, because there are no easy answers, is to have that conversation, is to not just try and make do and not, if you're an employee, not let your boss know that actually this is really difficult. And if you are a boss and someone brings that up, is you need to try and treat, to treat that as compassionately as you can and be flexible. And actually, there might be ways that actually, if you move the timing of doing tasks or you break tasks up or, or you do things differently, um, that actually you might better come to a very mutually acceptable position where actually the, the, the balance between the needs of the employer and the needs of the children can be met. But to, you ha- we all have to recognise that in most people's lives, our, our children and our families probably are, or they should be, <laughs> more important than our job. And so you don't want to end up forcing someone into a situation uh, where they're going to have to make decisions or, or do things badly because they're going to put their children first, whether you want them to or, or, or not. So I think in the short term is to be as flexible and compassionate and to have those discussions and to keep having those discussions to try and and do what you can to make the situation as, as good as you could. Um, I think in the longer term, this 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 worry that uh, parents will have that their their children will never catch up and they've been somehow sort of permanently damaged. My, my, my experience, both as a, as a parent, but also as a scientist and a clinician, is I, I don't think that that's that that's likely to happen in most cases. I'm not saying never because there obvious are situations. But, but children in terms of mental and physical health care are actually far more resilient than, than parents give them credit for. And they bounce back. And of course, I know everyone uh, is, is affected by this somewhat differently. But to be fair, most children are in a similar boat. Um, and so this isn't so much that your child's had six months or a year out and everyone else has been carrying on with their education normally. You know, the, the chances are that in their peer group, many, although not all of them, uh, will, will be having you know, similar experiences. So I think by all means, remain concerned, you know, and, and be aware, but try not to let your anxiety uh, manifest into, you know, what, telling your children that you know, things are never going to be the same and, and bad, because what's really evident is probably up until 16 and maybe even up until 18, is that the parents' anxieties and mental health concerns often um, sort of filter down to the children. And if you look at, at, at the biggest moderator for children's mental health and their ability to cope with adversity, it's actually the reactions of their parents. So after a single incident disaster where there's a fire or road traffic crash, the chance of the kids getting post-traumatic stress disorder is very much affected by the way that their parents react to it. Uh, so it's not infectious, but it definitely makes a difference. So the more that you can try and you know, adopt a philosophical approach, which I know is easy for me to say and hard to do, the better actually the outcome might be for your children in the first place. Well, that is a, uh, a really nice place to leave it. Um, it gives us a bit of hope here. And you've um, given us a, a whole range of perspectives on mm. what is uppermost in a lot of people's minds right now. So, Neil, thank you so much for, for joining us today. Thank you. Until next time, my friends, remember the world is evolving. Make your well-being a priority. <laughs>